So um, many of you know at, at Christ City, we, we, our goal, sometimes we do it really well, sometimes we struggle, but our goal is to create a container where there can be a wide spectrum of theology, of different ways of interpreting what the scriptures have to say and also how, how we live those things. And we do that, part of how we do that is by holding to what we read out loud earlier, the Apostles' Creed. It's the oldest uh, statement of faith in our faith tradition, in, in Christianity. Now, we do that with the understanding and appreciation that there are thousands of Protestant denominations in Christianity, and that most of those denominations exist because of a difference in belief on a particular theological issue. And so we know and we believe and we understand that those things are incredibly important and that we stand on the shoulders of 2,000 years of people doing theological work. And yet here, we make space for people to be in process with what they believe about any particular theological doctrine. So here's the rub, and here's why these eight practices are so important. If what holds us together isn't that we give all the same answers to all of the theological problems in our world and in our life, what is it that holds our congregation together? If it's not just our thoughts and our thinking and that all those are aligned at any given time and if you step out of line from one of those thinking ways of thinking you no longer belong, then there's got to be something else to hold us together as a people and a community of faith. At Christ City, it's the practice of our faith. It is the way that we express the life of Christ living in and through us in the world through our relationships with one another, through our relationship with God, and, and maybe even especially, our relationship with ourself. So we might not all agree on what the second coming looks like or means, but we can all agree that choosing presence, which is the first of our eight practices, is something that we all need to do to be able to encounter God and one another and ourselves and and to be able to enter into a deeper communion with God, with ourselves, with each other. And so the eight practices help to facilitate us as a community of believers being able to um, exist in a Christian tradition, in a Christian space, and be in process with different things and land in different places on different things, but to agree that we are going to practice our faith for the purpose of Christ-like transformation within us and in the world. And so that's the context. As we think about these eight practices, that's the context. How do we walk in the particular footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus the Christ and the Messiah towards the goal of spiritual maturity, of being a congregation formed and shaped by particular and practical practices 
that have been grown throughout these 2,000 years of Christian tradition. So the first one is choose presence that we're working on this Sunday here and that we'll be revisiting in Lent during the time of Lent as well. Now, how many of you have heard or said in the past like week or two, I just wanna be more present. You've heard somebody say that or you've said that. Every, if you're not raising your hand, you know, you probably forgot. Because people are saying that all the time now. I just want to choose presence, or I just want to be more present. You know, I'm just trying to be present. And it's for good reason, because it's a huge need in our world and in our culture. The problem is, I think, when we hear this and when it's echoed in the worlds that we're in, it's by the same people that spend New Year's Eve like this. Can we see this picture? This is a actual still shot from New Year's Eve. I believe it's in Paris, France. And um, what else can I say? I guess for the people on the podcast, everyone's phone is recording the passing of the new year. Nobody's kissing or toasting or even looking at each other. They're recording the event of New Year's. And then thinking about it, and we're sitting at home looking at this on a TV screen, trying to like connect with this event taking place in real time, but the people there aren't even connected to it. They're on their screens. And so choosing presence is an ancient problem with humanity, but the problem of it right now with social media, with a tiny, super high-powered computer in everybody's pocket, has been taken to new heights. And so um, it's, it's really something important to talk about and to think about. Um, I, when I think about choosing presence, I have a lot of trepidation to preach about it uh, because it's something that sometimes I feel like I'm good at and sometimes I feel like I'm really terrible at. Um, and it's a practice, okay? So a practice means it's something you keep trying to do. So it doesn't mean that you master it or that this is some kind of moral thing. Like if you do it good, you're more moral. And if you don't do it well, you're not moral. It's not that that kind of thing, but I'm... When I think about this, I'm reminded of this time, I think I was about 26 or so, and I was living in this uh, intentional community that you've heard me talk about, and I just didn't have any alone time. And there, there, were just, there was always somebody, and the person who was my immediate roommate, still a really good friend of mine, many of you have met him, named William, he had this wonderful habit of just inviting people into our living space any time of day or night, literally. Like I might wake up at five in the morning to pork chops being fried in, in the kitchen and somebody sitting there waiting to eat the pork chops. And that's not what I wanted to be doing at five in the morning. And so I went away uh, to, somebody had a, uh, what, what I thought was a lake house. When I got there, it was a lake trailer. Uh, but I got there to the nice lake trailer getaway and I was gonna spend 24 hours just to be by myself. And 
a couple hours in, I was, I was losing it. I was really anxious. And I got on the phone to like, try to talk to somebody on the phone and the reception wasn't really good. And uh, I, was, I just really didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, and um, I, it, this was even before I had like a smartphone or anything, so I couldn't get on social media. And I just realized I, I, in that 24 hours, I just didn't know how to be by myself. That something had happened as I progressed from childhood into adulthood, the accumulation of things that had happened in my life had left me at a point where when there was no outside stimuli for me, I didn't know just how to be with myself. And again, this is not, this is not a new problem for human beings, and maybe this isn't your problem, but the, the theologian and the philosopher in, in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal, said, all of humanity's problems, and I don't have this on the screen, stem from man's inability, and woman's, to sit quietly in a room alone. All of humanity's problems stem from man's ability to sit quietly in a room alone. If that's even kind of true, that means that the battle for us to learn what it means to practice presence is a battle for the soul of humanity. I mean, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. Maybe Blaze was, but... So with, with that, I want us to look at this maybe somewhat familiar passage of Scripture, at least the story is familiar, maybe not the exact words, where Moses, one of the, the architects of the Judeo-Christian faith, just through his life experience, he encounters God, the presence of God. And that there's something here that we can learn from and interact with to think about, to process. What does it mean for us to choose presence? What could it possibly benefit us if we were to take this really seriously in 2024? New, new year, new you, right? Let's do this, right? So chap, uh, verse 1. Exodus 3, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So I just want to remind you just for a second about what's going on in Moses' life. Moses, he grew up in a really traumatic environment in the empire of Egypt. And he ends up, through some clever subterfuge of, of his mom, uh, growing up in the palace of Egypt with all of the power of the most powerful empire in the world uh, at, at his disposal. He grew up as a prince, you know, prince of Egypt. I've never actually seen that uh, film. Yeah, I know, I know. You can, you'll, you can get me after the service about it. It'd be the only thing somebody reflects on me with, the Prince of Egypt. Uh, so um, he grows up knowing that he belongs to both the oppressor and the oppressed, so that he is Egyptian in his adopted 
uh, in his adopted culture, but he was born, he was born as an oppressed Hebrew slave. And so this reaches a pinnacle of pain in his adult life when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And it says, it literally says, he looked to and fro to make sure like nobody was watching. And then he kills the Egyptian who was beating the Israelite. So this moment, who knows what had happened up to that point, but he knew enough about where he came from that this was unacceptable to him. He didn't know how to deal with it. He exploded with rage and he, he murdered an Egyptian. And then he had to go on the run. And he ends up in the desert and he ends up marrying one of Jethro, this, this desert priest's daughter. And he leaves his whole life, his family, his people, he leaves it all behind and he becomes a shepherd. And so now he's, he's out shepherding and taking care of the sheep and making sure everything's going good with the sheep and building a family and having children and really just keeping himself really busy out there in the desert. And that's, that's where he is. He's left the pain and the fear and the mistakes and the complexities of the life he was born into seemingly left them behind. And now he's living this new life and he's nice and busy and he's got a new family and he's got new things to be concerned about and new tasks to keep his mind and his heart really busy. I know this doesn't relate to any choices any of us have made as adults in our lives. I'm sure of it. But I think underneath it, underneath all of this busying of the new things that Moses had to keep him occupied, that these underlying bouts of of rage and irritability would come up for him or he would react really inappropriately to the situation. Maybe sometimes he was cussing out his sheep, like, you stupid sheep, you know? And, and he's, later he's like, why, why did I say all that stuff to the sheep? It's, it's their sheep, you know? Some, something in him was just unresolved, but it wasn't his past because he left that behind. I know I'm not stepping on anybody's toes right now. In these circumstances, in verse two, it says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And I think this is incredibly interesting. I want you to try to be curious with me here because the first thing it says in this verse is that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And then in the next verses, it's gonna explain how in a little bit more in order, in chronological order, what happened first then what happened after that. And so I think, it's, I think it's easy for me to think, and maybe it is for you too, to think, well, if God just showed up like that, of course, you know, I, I, would, I would let God influence the direction of my life in a really profound way, that if God would just pop up on the scene like that, while I was just minding my own business, doing my thing, then of course I would take time to connect and hear from God and let God shape my life in a, in, a, in a really big way. I'd be really impressed, in fact. But then we keep reading in verse two, and it, it says how, how this happened. How did Moses see God? It said, Moses saw that the bush was on fire, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. 
So this is what happened first before Moses was aware of God's presence at all. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So Moses's connection with this visitation from God began because Moses saw something and became curious about what was going on with the thing that he saw. And he, and he was still enough in body and mind and spirit, even though he had all these sheep in front of him and spreadsheets and deadlines and all these things in front of him, his gaze looked up long enough to notice something in his environment and to notice that it seemed to be something he hadn't paid attention to before. Now, here's the interesting thing is, um, you know, critical scholarship loves to go back and look at these Bible stories and find unique ways to kind of turn and look at, at things. And so one of the things that uh, critical scholarship has said is, well, you know, it actually gets so hot in the desert that a bush would, could spontaneously catch on fire. So that's not necessarily a miracle that the bush would catch on fire. And I find that fascinating because that means that Moses could have seen many bushes burning around him over the course of the time that he was in the desert, but he stopped long enough to wonder, to be curious about this one. Because he could have seen that bush and said, yeah, there goes another burning bush and I'm really busy. But he stopped long enough and was curious enough and suspended his movement of soul, of body, of spirit, and he noticed something new he noticed that the bush didn't burn up. How easy could it have been for him to miss that in his life? Maybe Jethro, the desert priest, his father-in-law, started to teach him how to slow down, how to notice his environment, how to not be trapped in the constant busyness of the empire of Egypt that he was trained in. Maybe that's why on this particular day, he was able to notice that this bush didn't burn up. Maybe he'd learned or started to learn to see life more like a poet or an artist. I was thinking about the poetry of Mary Oliver. Anybody know the poetry of Mary Oliver? She is a master of this. And I found this excerpt from this poem called Sometimes. And it's got this stanza that just says, instructions for living a life. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. So Moses had become somehow in some way after his life in Egypt he had become acquainted with the curiosity of a poet, the curiosity to sustain his attention on something that seemed ordinary in his world, inconsequential, unimpressive. And in it, the presence of God, 
was made manifest to him. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, then and only then, when God had saw that Moses went over to look, to gaze, to contemplate, God called to him from within the bush, Moses. Or maybe it was more like, Moses. And Moses responded. This is choosing presence right here. This is something we've been talking about. Responded and said, here I am. That sometimes takes more courage than I have to do in my life. To show up to my life in my feelings, in my body, in a moment that is big, that maybe it's not big, but it feels big to me. And to say, I'm here, I'm present. I am in the room. I am with you in this moment to choose presence. In the stillness of this sustained moment of contemplation, God spoke in his ordinary life. And Moses said, here I am showing up. Let me tell you something, friends. If we don't learn ourselves how to show up, none of our relationships will ever go as deep as we want them to. And we will find ourselves blaming everybody else for not seeing us, not understanding us, not being with us. And we've yet to show up. In, um, in The Voice of the Heart, a book by Chip Dodd that's influenced our, the culture of our congregation, which we'll talk more about next week in Seek Health, he talks about these eight core feelings that we all have and that loneliness, that when loneliness is left unchecked, undealt with, and it, and it moves into great levels of apathy, that the, that the outcome, if left unaddressed, unacknowledged in a person's life, actually leads to evil. I doubt any mass shooters weren't lonely people. Anyhow, so verse five, it says, don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Two things that I want to point out about God's response when Moses says, here I am. The first is... Um, that God instructs Moses to respond to this ordinary place in the desert as if he was in a sacred space, that this is holy ground. What made that ground holy? Was it that God descended from heaven and was now there? Or could it have been it became holy ground because Moses now realized 
the presence of the divine, like his ancestor that God invokes a verse later, Jacob, when Jacob wakes from a dream and says, God was in this place all along, but I was unaware. I think that this is the, this is the power of the practice of presence, that when we truly invest in choosing presence in our lives, when we learn methods and ways to combat all of the many sources that seek to fill us up with noise, that we begin to find holy places where there was just ordinary, busy life before. And y'all are feel free to say amen anytime that you hear something that you resonate with. The second thing that I want to draw our attention to that God said here is that Moses let or God let Moses know that the God speaking to him was not a God that was located in only a specific space, a specific context, but that this God speaking and in the presence of Moses was the same God, was the same God that his ancestors had had interactions with, that had promised them things, that had led them through uh, wildernesses and, and through difficulties and, and through barrenness and through all kinds of difficulties and things, that this was not a God relegated to a certain space or time, that this was the God of the past, present, and future, that this was the God of relationship to everyone and everything that he had ever known and heard of. This was not the gods of Egypt. This was not the gods of the empire, the gods of commerce and wealth and power and oppression. This was the still, small voice of Yahweh. This is who, in his stillness of body, mind, soul, heart, and the curiosities of normal life, of contemplation, this is who Moses had come to encounter in these moments, in this moment. So the story is here. Uh, I want to just spend a couple more minutes talking about some of the principles or ideas about choosing presence. And I want to start by saying, and I have this on, on a slide too here, that the conditions for choosing presence can only be met when we assume there are things unknown to us occurring in seemingly familiar situations. I'm bad at this a lot of times. And there's reasons I'm learning about why that is. And it's helping me practice presence more as I learn more about these things. But assuming in the familiarity of my life, of my relationships, of my world, that there are things unknown to me. To choose presence is a stance of unknowing. 
which is different than ignorance. Ignorance is I'm not going to get educated on the things that I need to get educated on. Unknowing says that even in my education, even in my understanding, that there are unknown things at work in this world around me. Jesus would call it the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so a term to think about this is something called our, our field of attention, a, 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 a term coined by uh, a different different spiritual directors and things like that that use this word, but the field of attention are the things that we notice. And as human beings, we learn to edit out things. There's all kinds of memory tests, even with the people who win memory contests, that when they're asked to recall what was in a room, what was, what was in an environment, that their brain automatically edits things out. And we edit out people, we edit out things that we hear, and a lot of times what, those, what the things we edit out, what they leave, are the things we already believe are true about other people, about our environments, about all of those things. And so for that, for Moses on that day, his field of attention slightly expanded, a window of possibility opened up, something that combated the cynicism of his heart of just pain can only be and shame can only be run away from. And he was able to see something new. His field of attention expanded ever so slightly and God got in. Oh yeah, there we go. Amen. So a way to think about the expansion of our awareness and our attention is to contrast it with what could be called downloading. Uh, and the, I got this from so, Susan Beaumont. I read this book in 2020 and 2021. It's called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going. I figure we're far enough from that. I can tell y'all I read that in 20 and 2021. But she talks a lot about leading with presence. And she says, the default for many of us is something called downloading in our experiences. And so when we're downloading, that's when I'm in a conflict with my wife, Becky, and I, I see what I see and I assume I already know what's to be known about the situation. And it never goes well. And what happens when we, when we just see something and we think when we download, we, we are thinking what we see and our interpretation of it are one and the same. There's nothing unknown about what we are perceiving through our five senses. When we do that, our lives become self-fulfilling prophecies until God interrupts those things. Self-fulfilling prophecies because we already know everything. So we, we recreate the same traumas, the same pains, the same circumstances in our relationships over and over again. And we never realize the common denominator is only us. Why do these things keep happening to me? <laughs> so people 
act the way I think they will or problems act the way that I think they will. And I've already decided that's all there is to see, that's all there is to pay attention to. I said to Becky one time recently when I was not present, I already know what you're gonna say. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It was horrible, really bad. I hope that I'm never unpresent enough to say that again. So here's a quote from Susan Beaumont about this idea of downloading. She says, when downloading, our learning is limited to reconfirming what we already know to be true. We convince ourselves that our reflection on our experience is the same as the experience itself, that it captures the fullness of all that may have happened. That's just a burning bush. All these burning bushes going unaware and God's like, I wonder, I wonder if Nay's gonna pay attention to this burning bush. I wonder if Stephanie is. I wonder if they'll go over and check it out this time. So the uh, other option is to work to expand our awareness instead of thinking that what we see and the interpretation we have of it is one and the same, we already know all the answers, where our lives are self-fulfilling prophecies, to take a stance of unknowing. When we take a stance of unknowing, we cannot help but have our awareness expanded. And here's why I think, for most of us, for me, why it's so hard to do. Because the moment we sit still, the moment that we allow ourselves not to be filled with all of our knowings and all of our sources of information, what comes up is a lot of pain and shame. That's what happened to Moses. Because as this conversation continued, the first thing, the very, the very next thing I should say that God tells Moses is, remember all those people that you left back in Egypt? I've heard what's going on with them. I've heard their pain. And I'm gonna ask you to re-engage the most painful, shameful, scary parts of your life. Oh, that's why, that's why we don't wanna see the bush that doesn't burn up because we're trying to get away from the pain and we keep yelling at the sheep and cussing them out, thinking we're gonna get enough distance between the shame and the pain that we just don't do it anymore. And we say, well, I'm just gonna say these, these verses over and over. I'm gonna just read this self-help book. I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna kind of like just get over it and, and move on. But God brings Moses right back into it, right back into those moments. And um, it reminds me of, uh, and I'm, I'm closing here, two minutes, okay, two minutes. It reminds me of earlier last year, Malia, my daughter, she fell down outside and she was crying and Becky and I looked at her foot and, and there was like a big, bump on it and it 
and we, and we pulled like a little bit of a sliver out of it, but she, we saw her limping a few days later and looked at her foot and it was swollen again. And we were trying to get in there and see if there was something in there. And it was like, oh, that's just, you know, skin. No, that's a sliver. And we got another tiny piece of sliver out. We're like, okay, good. And then a couple days later, swollen again. And I think I was taking Benjamin to Taekwondo or something. And and Becky texted me a picture. She's like, we found out what was going on. There was, there was underneath all the pus and swelling and all this stuff that we couldn't see, there was still yet another chunk. And as long as we try to run from our pain and shame, it's just gonna swell. And eventually we're gonna start hobbling and we're gonna start looking for crutches and other things to support us when what we need is to be ushered into the presence of God and for God to say, I am going to walk with you through this pain. And it hurts. Oh, Malia cried. She cried and she cried and we felt bad trying to get that out. And we had to kind of start and stop. And we had to try sometimes and then stop for a while and then go back to it and, and, and try again when she had recovered. And, and my experience with my pain and my shame is it's a lot like that, is I can enter into it a little bit out of a, at a time. And, and, and God and other guides, my, my uncle Jethro in-laws that guide me can help pick out a little bit at a time. And then I can't bear it anymore. And still until I start cussing at the sheep again, and I say, I'm going back, going to choose presence again. And so these are the things that we're trying to build and embed more into our culture at Christ City, like breathing prayers, centering prayers, meditation, where we can leave space to expand our sense of unknowing. We can empty space for God to become present in it. And if you are like me when you're 26, you're not ready for it. You try and it doesn't work. And that's why our second practice next week is called Seek Health. And so we're gonna dive into that next week. If you want to see some more resources, you can go on our website under practices and click on Choose Presence and read more about it. And there's a link to a website there for Centering Prayer. And there's a couple of other really simple, just entry level things you can do to step, step into that. And of course, talk to, talk to us if you want to learn more. Talk to me if you want more resources. And, uh, and we'll give, get more of those out at Lent as well. So let's pray. God, thank you that you are present with us, that you are just right around the corner, just right outside of our field of attention sometimes, just beside us, wondering when we'll be ready. I pray that you would give us holy nudges, that you would fill our moments with grace, able to be present enough to connect with you. Amen.